0: Hey. Okay. So, I hope you notice a couple of things here. First of all, got myself a new microphone. Brand new microphone. So everything should sound a lot clearer at least on my side. Um I'm also going to be messing with the audio a little bit and changing the way that it comes in. I'm going to record the Zoom calls and place that into the thing and then do the noise reduction. You don't need to know that much about this, but that's what I'm going to do. So going forward, really, from today on, you should hear, it just should sound better. I told the people, the Connected Podcast Network people, that I was going to be getting a new microphone if and when I got a new job. Well, I did Now it is April 10th as I record this And this episode is not going to come out until I don't even know Uh Late May, early June Whatever, whatever it is that you're listening to this Um, anyway So, uh No, man, yeah, it's gonna be April 16th for the next one And then, no, well, it's gonna be mid-June By the time this one comes out, I mean mid-June So, um I was listening back to an episode from a few episodes ago. Uh, I don't remember which one it was, but I, I listened back to my episodes before they're released to to take notes on what was said and see what sort of um, comes out of it. Because I did end up using my podcast in my dissertation, not directly. I didn't like cite some profound thing I thought that I said, but I. Uh, I did write down some of my impressions from each episode I listened to, at least starting in the second season, and sort of the fact that it's really obvious to me that whatever I'm writing in my book or dissertation was ending up in the podcast that week, because whatever conversation I have with a guest, it's just based on whatever I'm thinking, and, and, and well, whatever I wrote is what I'm thinking. So that's interesting. But another thing that I noticed, though, is that, like, I was waiting for years to, get, to try to get a new job. Um, I... You know, to get specific about it, when I... So, I, I was in Korea for two years, and the raw amount of dollars I was making wasn't very much. But because they they subsidize your your lodging and stuff like that, you could save a fair bit. You could save a $1,000 a month without thinking about it. Um, which isn't that much in New York. I mean, I'm not saying saving is bad. I just mean like $1,000 isn't that much in New York. But I wasn't in New York, so... And I came home with a bunch of money sick. Not that much, but enough that I really could have done something with it if I wanted to. And my plan actually was to apply to New York City Teaching Fellows. For those who don't know, you can basically pay $6,000 and you get a master's and you basically are a public school teacher and that's that. I mean, you have to get in. The problem is the Teaching Fellows wanted someone who was greener. I did have two years of teaching experience. And uh, that's from what people told me after I applied. Um, they, they, They wanted someone brand new. So I didn't get in. So then I didn't do it myself, and I—that I, was my whole plan when I came back from Korea. I was going to be, I was actually going to be a public school teacher. Um, didn't happen. Um, and then I sort of scuffled for a while professionally. I, uh, I came back from Korea, and I just—I wasn't—I didn't have a certification for public school because that's what I was going to go get the teaching fellows thing for. And I just sort of taught, a, a, you know whatever jobs would have me first at a, like, sort of summer camp when people did exchanges, and I, I taught them. They were in high school and then uh, college age. And then I finally got, and it's funny because in 2011, I tried to get a job at a sort of more reputable place, and they told me I didn't have enough adult teaching experience, so I got an adult teaching job, and I've been teaching adults since then, which is funny. Um, and I worked at a really shitty for-profit, for-profit school, quote-unquote college, but no. Um, they called everyone professor, which to me was just sort of condescending because it was like a for-profit place and yeah, I again now let's not pretend that regular colleges, you know, the neoliberal whatever, please don't at me with that shit. But um this place is real shady. I did that for a year and a half and then I I got fed up and I didn't want to do what they wanted me to do so I almost lost my job. I didn't, but I almost did. And right around that time I was applying for another place and I got a job in a nonprofit. That was a, a, a harrowing process because it took two months just because it had it spanned the holidays from december to january but um got that job and and then that, that job you know i had insurance didn't pay a lot um and i did that for four years by that by the end of the four years there i'd met my wife and i was married and she was basically like buddy buddy this is not this ain't it and so I looked around and I found something new, which was not in language teaching, which is why I do all this language stuff, but I'm not even a language teacher anymore. And it was working in sort of professional development, and employee training and that sort of thing. And I kind of like professional development, but I've learned after the five years of in this last job, that I don't love internal professional development where you're just like, you're brought in to make the employees of an agency better at their jobs, because I feel like it's often kind of condescending. It just sort of tends to penalize people. And that doesn't mean inherently, but it's just that the way it's done, is usually like, you're bad at this. Um It's one thing if there's a new system Introducing you have to train them on that system Which to me, yeah, you gotta learn a new system But where it's just like We've realized that these people are bad at this We should make them feel like they're bad at this I don't know, I'm not saying that's everything that happens in my job It's not really my job, I just think that's the way the sort of employee training world works But anyway, I did that for five years And I, you know, I had some up and downs there There's some things I liked, some things I didn't like and I. But I knew that I really wanted to do something What was I gonna do when I finished school, you know That was a good question I didn't know for a long time And, um I started looking around Years ago in 2019 I wasn't anywhere close To finishing school at that point I was only a year in But I just wanted to do something different And then nothing really worked out And then I You know 2020 happened And then I said You know Just being a doctoral student Is not Much Resume wise You're just like Yeah I'm taking some classes Getting close to graduating People can start to think of you As being on your staff As a person with a doctorate And I'm not saying People with doctorates Are better than people Who don't have doctorates But I just mean in terms Of a credential Um and so I sort of backed off of it in early 2020, and there were obviously things going on. Um, and then, you know, I had some issues at work. You know, I just was 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 really struggling with the fact that I didn't. I thought what I was doing was not only not pushing against racism, but it was contributing to the exploitation of uh, especially men of color because we I worked in child support. And um, now I'm not saying people shouldn't pay to child support. However, the way that the, that the agency went about it, I think, was predatory, and um, I didn't like being part of that. So I was just just hard to motivate myself. Then I pulled it together to to you know continue with my work. But then as I got close to finishing, I said I, I got to do something different, and so I started applying. <laughs> this saga. I don't want to talk forever about this. Um, we do have an interesting episode, by the way. If you don't if you don't care about the whole Justin life experience, well. Why why are you listening to The Justin Show, right? But, uh, yeah, interesting episode. You can skip ahead to that next section if you'd like to. Um, But, uh, so, in in the fall, they sent us back to the office. And, you know, I didn't really want to go. But then I realized that it wasn't really COVID that I was trepidatious about. I'm not saying COVID isn't a concern, I'm just saying that my reaction was not just that. I'd been doing not a lot, like we haven't been in the restaurants and stuff like that, but that's mostly because we have a toddler, not because of COVID. Um and so I went back to the office and I said, What, what am I so stressed about? And then that's when I got my diagnosis actually. I went and got an evaluated and I said, There's some things here that I think are related to the symptoms that I always thought I had not always, but the last several years thought I had with ADHD. I got my evaluation, I got an accommodation so I could work on the ADHD this spring. Which is to say, like, I was only in the office half the time. And then my goal was to find a new job by the time April 1st came around where they were going to make everybody go back to the office more often. I also didn't really want to be there in April because... My coworkers, who had not been there at all for two years, not all of them, but most of them hadn't been there at all in two years, were going to come back. And I just had to figure the morale would be bad. And there's some people there who've been really grouchy for understandable reasons, but some for less. And I'll let me not go into that too deeply. But uh, there's some of them I have a lot of sympathy for and some of them I don't. Let's just put it that way. And uh, I just want to be there. And it just seemed like it would be bad morale, you know. So I was hoping to get a job by April 1st. And I did. I was offered the job on March 28th. Um, And then I was finishing a project, and the project is about to finish. I record this on April 10th. It'll be finished by the 14th, and my last day is April 15th. Um, And you're hearing this like two months later, like, what do you care? Uh, The reason I'm bringing all this up is because I listened to a recent episode, or the one, a couple episodes before this, and I was really audibly stressed now if you don't know me i just sound like me i'm talking fast whatever but i was listening to to my speech and my breath was a little bit short and like in the time when i was getting really close to getting these jobs because i had two jobs that were on offer although i got this offer first i was so stressed i didn't think it would ever end you know i i haven't really gotten to where i wanted to be in my standard professional career my writing is going well but Let's be clear, writing an academic book is not a job. (laughs) It certainly doesn't pay the bills. Uh, And, you know, I'm reasonably growing in prominence in terms of the talks I give, but that is not a job. And I was worried that, that, you know, I'd never really get to a place where I, I was sort of felt like I was respected in my work. So I finally have a job that seems that way. I don't have any reports for you on how the job is. I haven't started it yet. But that's, you know, I, I just I listened to the episode and I realized how stressed I was And in the last few weeks I've been forcing myself Not to take on any projects To write at night, like I'll I'll start up Again in a couple of weeks, I can't I can't resist forever, because there's some nights When I sit at my computer at 7 o'clock When I've been doing all this work at night For th- several years And I don't have any writing to do And it's weird, and I'm like, well maybe you should write something And I'm like, no Justin, take time, take your time You know? Uh so all right so I didn't say what the name of the show was this is some standardized English. I'm JPV Gerald. this is a show uh, where we challenge um, where we push for racial we push for justice for the racially linguistically and neurologically minoritized. I uh, am by the time you hear this a graduate with a doctorate in education um, and I In my day job work In professional development spaces Um, And then in my spare time I do this If you haven't heard this show before Um, So if you like the work um, You like hearing these things I just said in the last 10 minutes uh, There's a Patreon for the show Which you can find in the show description Like when you clicked on the link It should be in there Um, And yeah this week's episode is, Is a really interesting one So this is with Ursula Moffitt um, who sat on a topic. Sorry, I had to just I had to do it once. I'm gonna do it again with her on the show. She's probably gonna be annoyed. But anyway, uh <laughs> the I came across her work when I was doing dissertation work. And my dissertation, if you don't know, but why would you not know if you're listening to this, is uh There's a lot of questions involved, but the main question is I taught a class on whiteness and a lot of white people took it. It wasn't just white people, but I interviewed some of the white people who took the class to be like, these people are doing things differently from what they were told to do, right? These were not people who were maybe with one or two exceptions. These were not people who were raised in what we might call overtly racist homes. They were raised in usually liberal homes, um, where, but they still got sort of these coded racial messages, um, but it was very, like, be nice to everybody, but then they still were getting the messages, you know? And so they've chosen to break away, break away from the master narrative, and the master narrative being things like American dream and that sort of thing, um, that was set before them. So uh, one of the things I'm contrasting my work to is uh, the work of Janet Helms, who created, for those who do research on whiteness, a sort of white racial identity development metric, in um, 1990, and then reproduced again in 95. And I'm not so much criticizing Helms so much as talking about the ways that people tend to use her model and other similar models. She just was a prominent one. Um, and skip over the hard work or the fact that like this internal racial development doesn't necessarily lead to institutional change. Um, so a big part of my dissertation is this sort of tension between the individual and the uh, institutional. Moffitt and her colleagues released a study I believe, last year, um, where they had done research with white adolescents, I believe, and uh, talked about along the white racial identity development scale, how these people had developed or not developed. Really interesting article. And so I want to talk to Dr. Moffitt, Um, about her work and sort of this sort of tension between the individual and the institution and, you know, white people trying to be better. You know that's what this show is about, right? If you listen to this show, you know that. So that's what the episode's about. Thank you for bearing with me to hear about my sort of job situation. Let's be clear, I'm just really relieved that it has gone a lot better lately. So things should be good. Um, Other news, my book is... That being, being produced by the time you hear this it probably will have been created um, although I will have to create the index myself which sounds like painful time wasting but it needs to happen um, and yeah uh when there's links for the book to be bought i will be sharing them with you it will be out they told me that it was going to be out in september and i asked them what day and they say all of our books come out on the last day of the month so that'd be september 30th they said but one of the august books is having a delay so you might slide into there so i keep getting up earlier it might even be august so anyway folks thanks for listening to my little preamble this week it's the longest i've done uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Dr. Moffitt, and I appreciate your uh, patience and support for the work that I've been trying to do for these several years. All right. So, folks, welcome back to Unstandardized English. Uh, you all know I'm J.P.P. Child. up here today with... Dr. Ursula Moffitt. Uh, Well, before we get into her work, I'm just going to ask her to describe herself, some some of the things that she's worked on, and then we'll get into it.
1: All right. Yeah, thank you. Um, Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, so I'm Ursula Moffitt. I'm currently a postdoc at Northwestern University in Evanston, although I live in Chicago and have spent minimal time on campus, uh, so I feel like It's in Chicago, not, not Evanston. Um, I am a developmental psychologist. Um, but my training is very interdisciplinary. Um, I got my bachelor's degree in psychology and then my master's in German Turkish social sciences. Um, which is a really niche program that focuses on the relations between Germany and Turkey. Um, so. It's interdisciplinary, international relations, sociology, social theory, critical theory. Um, And for that program, as a cohort, you all start uh, in Turkey, in Ankara, and then move together to Berlin, Germany. So I did that kind of just out of interest. Um, Now I'm really going off a little bit, but... Uh, I did a high school exchange year in Germany and lived with a Turkish-German family, and that was kind of the origin of of my interest in Turkish-German issues. Um, And after college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I was interested in leaving the U.S. again, and so that was an opportunity to do that. And then I had planned on returning to the U.S. after that master's, but wound up not really knowing what I wanted to do yet again. Um... So I stayed in Berlin and then basically couldn't get a job for a while. Um, I had the experience uh, that a lot of folks have of, you know, not having qualifications that made me a better candidate than the Germans around me uh, who all spoke English and my German wasn't perfect. So I was just not getting jobs. And I therefore decided to go back into academia, go back to school. Um, and I applied for a bunch of Ph.D. positions. They're they're called positions in Germany, not programs. Um, you really apply as an employee of the, the state university, um, not just as a student. And I applied pretty broadly. Um, because my my research interests were already really about identity and identity in the context of migration and inequitable societies. Um, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to go back into psychology or something else. But I got rejected from all of the non psych programs and uh, so therefore went back into psychology and got my Ph.D. Uh, from the University of Potsdam in 2019. And there, my research focused primarily on the racialization of national identity in Germany. So uh, the equation of whiteness and Germanness, and kind of what that means um, specifically in the educational context. So in secondary schools, um, both in terms of what's being taught and also norms of whiteness and how how they shape. School Climate and school belonging, um, but then also how they 're negotiated by adolescents but also young adults, um, specifically Turkish Germans sort of pushing against norms of whiteness um, as they as they navigate their German identities and then I came back to the u s and have since focused on pretty similar kinds of topics in the u s context. Um, Looking at racial identity development, most specifically among white youth, um, and then also the development of critical consciousness or beliefs and behaviors resisting societal inequity. Um, so that was a pretty long intro. I, I kind of covered all the bases there, but yeah, that's, that's me.
0: So, um, certainly a lot there to pull at but obviously what I wanted to focus on is some of the last stuff you mentioned because you know you you and some colleagues published an article I guess it was last year at this point you mm-hmm. never know because I'm sure you wrote it long before that but when actually it was the year on the citation is 2021 that's what I know mm-hmm. um, and so I believe you all were looking at racial identity development in white I guess pre-adolescence was that the age room or you could tell me more details about it but oh um, well, yeah, was that the yeah. right age range? Yeah.
1: yeah, middle childhood through early adolescence, so like third grade through eighth grade basically, yeah. Right,
0: and it wasn't the entire focus of it but, you know, you were sort of in conversation with Helms' work on white race identity development, and obviously there's more to it than that but I sort of came across this because when I was working on my dissertation I, you know this, I'm just telling the audience, Um <laughs> that I, you know, I needed some sort of a ballast to to push against, not you, but I mean, thinking about Helms, um, not because I disagree with what Helms did, um, but because, like, I think that, and this isn't necessarily Helms' fault, this is sort of how academia is, people see a a useful model, and then they want to flatten it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was trying to push against the flattening not so much what she wrote right Hmm. but the way that it's sort of compressed into a simple process Hmm. if you actually read what she wrote it's not simple and the last the last step is Mm open-ended right but if people just look at it from a bird's eye view and they're like oh oh i'll get to to the last stage and i'm done and i'm like okay and i've seen it used way too often as like you know, I forget how many stages there are. Seven, I think, something like that. But like six. Yeah. But then there's just like one, two, three, four, five, six. OK. Um, And then in her six stages, she's capturing the fact that obviously people are going to fall back. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that looking for a simple process is part of the reason why people get stuck. Mm. And so I wanted to talk to you about that on here because. I think that sort of engaging with these ideas just of models and of identity development, but also thinking about the possibility of changing sort of – this isn't necessarily going to be the case with with pre-adolescence, but changing sort of institutional power um, based on these things, because, like, if adults go through these steps, right, but they have the ability to actually change things, but you're talking about critical consciousness and all that stuff, like how – how can we one operationalize sort of an individual development so that it has an impact on policy? You know mm. what I'm saying?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that last part is a really big question. Definitely. Um, it's kind of what my
0: registration is. <laughs> it's what sort of ended yeah. up being. Uh, it's not what it started being, okay. uh, but it ended up yeah. being.
1: Ah, uh, uh, yes, that's how it goes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say to kind of take what you were just talking about in, in some pieces just thinking first about her model as a stage model, I think to to really think about that you need to contextualize it in terms of when it was developed and in conversation with whom it was developed. So, thinking about Cross's model of negrescence, thinking about the black racial identity models that were, um, you know, being developed in the seventies and eighties, and that she was really building on this notion of you know, really crosses notion of there being an interpersonal or societal catalyst that kind of pushes people towards development. But very explicitly saying, you know, specifically in her model, um, that a lot of white people don't ever have that catalyst, that a lot of white folks stay in this pre-encounter stage that, you know, pre- Stage one, if you're thinking about it as a stage model, which, you know, was how she initially laid it out. And I think that was part of what got flattened. What what folks like didn't really read or listen to when they looked at her model or took it up, but instead critiqued this notion of linear development across stages without really reading her writing where she she says pretty clearly, you know, most white adults are either not going to progress through these stages or, as you said, you know, they'll progress maybe a little bit and then often kind of go back. Um, And so that's that's something that I think was critiqued, especially by psychologists, both because there was a lot of interest in linear stage models, you know, up until like the 90s, but then also because there was broad swath critique, pushing against the idea of linear stage models after that once we realize that actually, you know, most people don't neatly progress through stages, whether you're talking about racial identity development or moral development or or any, you know, other kind of development. Um, so I think that's that's one place. Where her model definitely was misinterpreted and, and got taken up in ways that she clearly didn't intend it to be. Um, yeah.
0: That's the thing, right? You get your thing out there in a way that people will publish it, and then all of a sudden people want to take it wherever they want to, right? Um, and there's not a whole lot you can do about that.
1: Um, <laughs> she did, though. I mean, that's her later work. Like, yeah. I I love reading all of her articles where she just is slamming her critics because right? she, she published so many response pieces, which also is like – Kind of hard to read, recognizing the number of incredibly harsh and often, you know, out of place critiques that, that were lobbied against her. Um, but she kept publishing and kept arguing for, you know, okay, maybe we shouldn't call them stages. Maybe they're schemas. Maybe that language helps to, to let folks know that it's not about going through one through six in order. Um, but that, you tend to be in one schema, but you can also regress. You can also be across the schemas. Um, but but I think her main point remained from the 80s through now that, you know, most white adults are not critically interrogating the system of white supremacy that shapes the society we live in and our role within it as white individuals. Um and that, that, to me, was her main point.
0: Yeah, I think that, because what I'm interested in is not stage one, and, and I don't mean her model. I just mean it, it however you want to frame it, right? I'm not super interested in people getting to step one. Mm. Like, how that happens, it's interesting to me, but I have seen very little evidence, and this doesn't even contradict what Helms is saying. In fact, it goes along with it. Um, I have seen very little evidence that there's really a pattern to, like, well, you know, because I I didn't interview that many people in my situation, it was a small, small thing. But, like, even just in in informal conversations, like, some people's lives were like this, some people's lives were like that. And then when Mm -hmm. it came to the people who are genuinely making, like, concerted, you know, like, life-changing amounts of of effort to do things differently to challenge whiteness, there's no pattern. Hmm. I haven't found one. Maybe you could go and say certain things like, oh, maybe more of the college degrees or whatever, but that's, it's not, that's not, re- I said, I said, maybe, I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying, co- I mean, but cause remember, I'm not talking about like slurs and stuff. I'm just talking about actively challenging things. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. like going a lot farther than just being quote unquote, not racist. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. But like, i'm saying i haven't done the work i, I was just taking a, a random attribute to say like that could theoretically be true it could i don't know mm. but like i don't once you start to get into to things like that like how, first of all how predictive could it really be a single attribute um and then like it's also not going to capture the nuances of these stories you know i my my, my work isn't the dissertation isn't really about helms like it comes up and i'm not you know i'm offering sort of the same critique but just as an example um to be like but it's more a critique of how people use the thing you know mm-hmm. um and uh because what I the, I was looking I was kind of it wasn't really my research set, question like what is the pattern what leads them to doing things and I'm talking about people who are genuinely like from their home lives to their school lives I mean they're all educators um trying to do things differently Right, mm-hmm. and what I found was like I was asking them about what they were doing at work, and mm-hmm. they said what they said, and they all had slightly different things to say, but I and I wasn't necessarily asking them about this. I mean, it came up in the conversations because that was a semi-structured interview, and you know, I wasn't super rigid about it. And the, what what I found is that every single one of them, like they, what what the change for me was from their lives is that they couldn't they couldn't stop when the clock when they're off the clock. Like they, yeah. they had to live yeah. this, you mm-hmm. know, and yeah. I mean, it's both ways, though. You have to live it, but you also have to do it at work
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you have to do you have to do both mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. you have to do it all of the time. And yeah. <laughs> that's what people don't want to do. And I understand. Yeah. I don't want to do it all the time but I have to yeah. uh, and, and it's just you know it goes for other axes of oppression I'm talking about whiteness because mostly because it's the one that people would prefer the least to talk about but mm-hmm. uh, it goes for class and it goes for gender as well but I mean I was focusing on whiteness and also I don't think whiteness is just enough skin color, Blah 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 um, yeah. so you know I'm interested in like I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm interested in it, but one of the questions I have that is not really a registration, but it's just an underlying question is, like, is there a way to, let's say I did more interviews that, that like the ones I did, right, um, and they all tell the stories, and there's no particular pattern to their early adolescence, right, because hmm. I had no pattern, really, about, like, well, what their parents did or what part of the country they lived in, there was no pattern, but there wasn't that many people. But mm-hmm. that's not the point. The point is there was more of a pattern in how they tried to approach it. And the, the pattern was that it was all encompassing.
1: Yeah. That's The yeah. only
0: thing that I was able to find that they were all doing is that they were all doing it all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I don't know if you, if you tr- turn around and tell people, it's like, well, you're going to have to change your entire life <laughs> yeah, forever and yeah. Ne- never stop. <laughs> and you're also going to be bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> like, like who's going to be like well that sounds fun yeah um, <laughs>
1: yeah and people are going to critique you and harass you and right. you know tell you you're wrong all the time and yeah yeah
0: and you know even if you are legitimately doing the work people of, of color or racialized people still may well not trust you and they're yeah. right not to trust you yeah. and yeah. you're just gonna have to deal with that
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like you're not going to get a gold star.
1: (laughs) No, I would say though, that that all is in line with Helms's work, especially her 2020, you know, the, the little book, um, I don't have it in front of me. Race is a nice thing to have, I Mm -hmm. believe is what it's called. Um, yeah, I do have it in front of me. A race is a nice thing to have a guide to being a white person or understanding the white persons in your life. Um, Because there, I mean, she talks about it in her earlier work as well, but there she she does specifically talk about, you know, the exactly as you're saying, like the depth and breadth of the process that is necessary for engaging an ongoing anti-racist white identity. Um, And she also talks about, you know, that you might lose friends and that it's not going to be easy um, and I think, you know, that, that you're not going to be having fun. Like, it's not, it's not like, oh, this is so, so cool and exciting. And exactly as you're saying, like, you're not going to be getting gold stars, but that it's, it's a something that you have to decide to do. And then you are changing your life and then you can't unsee it. You know, it's, you can't go back, um, in terms of your framework i would say but of course behavior can change and people do go back so i i want to be careful with that you know it's not like it's not an end point but it's very hard to unlearn once you do have an understanding of the history and present of white supremacy etc like that part i think is part of what makes it exactly as you're saying, like something that necessarily has to be at work and at home and not just one or the other. Like you're not doing the work if you're just doing it part-time for funsies. You know, it, it has to be, it has to be all encompassing.
0: It's um, another thing I'm working on, which is based on some of the research in my dissertation and I'm calling it, it's a whole life endeavor, hmm. you know, and it's just like, there's, it's, for the people who know, it's obvious. And if you <laughs> aren't doing that, it's kind of hard to explain. <laughs>
1: yeah, You know?
0: Like, I can write it down. But, like, you can't... It's kind of a, a feel thing. You know what I'm yeah. saying? You know? And and for me, because my perspective has always been a little bit interesting because I've always been mostly, like, the blackface in a lot of white spaces. And... Mm. You know, I didn't think it affected me that much until the last 10 years when I looked back and really thought about it. And, you know, one of the things I noticed is like, especially since I had my son, um, you know, being around other parents, I, I was in the first year, there wasn't anybody really being around much of anybody. But after that, in the playground and stuff, um, they just seem so stressed all the time, just following what, I, you know, the master narrative that they've been handed.
1: Hmm.
0: Like it's not.
1: You mean white parents in particular, or yeah, yeah.
0: I oh, mean, okay. particular I mean, white parent. I mean, parents in general, because you can follow the masculinity even if you're not white. But uh, you know, you know, the way that you achieve to make to create the best child, right? You don't have to be oh, white yeah. to follow that. <laughs> uh, it is derived from whiteness, but it, you hmm. you you can be trying to, to 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 participate in that even if you're not white. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But like, it's not fun like it can't be what What? because you said it's not I said it's not fun you said it's not fun but on the other hand like it is so much more like you see what's true of the world and that's really dispiriting but you also see the work that people are doing and it's just there's just so much more resonance mm-hmm. in, li- in life on this yeah. side of things um, now I'm sure you know people on the other side say these things too but like yeah, do
1: they Oh I
0: know I they no, probably still describe it this way, right? Okay. You know. I think that giving it a there's just so much depth to it, you know? Mm. And um I've always wondered how people four or five generations before me and my family just made it through things. Mm. And I don't think it's not quite the same thing. And I don't mean that I'm in their situation, but I do think that there's, I feel much closer to them doing this with my life. Hmm. You know, um, I feel like, I mean, I'm sure all of them are just sort of trying to get by, but like the, the, you know, I was wondering, like, how could they, how could they feel joy in those times? Like how, you know,
1: Hmm.
0: but they did, at least some of them. And that to me, it also it, it can be dispiriting in general, but it also I'm just like all I know is I exist, therefore they didn't give up. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. These are some of
0: the things I think about.
1: <laughs> I mean, well, just I was just kind of reflecting on on what you were just saying, and and one thing that comes up for me is something that my my current mentor the wonderful ani rogers um, has really instilled in me and and helped shape my work towards focusing on resistance as a human capacity an innate human capacity so not thinking about you know critical consciousness or resistance to inequity as a construct that we need to teach young people but rather a capacity that we all have that often is socialized out of us by the harmful systems that we live in and that we wind up recreating. Um, And so also I think when you think about resistance as an innate capacity, to me, linked to that is also joy and, you know, wanting to thrive and survive. And yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. I was, there's a chapter in my book where, and I don't know how I came up with this, but I wrote that book really fast. So the things that just came into my head as I wrote it, but, um, let me just sound like it's bad. It's not, but it is, it was definitely written quickly. Um, but when I was talking, I'm like, how do I, I have a very short chapter because it goes like whiteness and I talk about blackness, how about disability. And I'm getting to language eventually because it's a book technically about language teaching, <laughs> but the chapter that's specifically about Blackness, I'm like, what do I, it's just like, I got like 3,000 words to describe Blackness. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Now, of course, this was a self-imposed limit. I could have written forever about it, but it's a language book, so I can't just write about Blackness forever. I could do that in a different book, but like, Mm. so I'm like, what am I going to talk about? And this is related to what you just said. I started talking about minstrel shows, right? And I started talking about what they represented, at least to me, and, you know, citing scholarship and all that, but um, talking about how it was all sort of a dark projection of what white people actually felt themselves. Like it wasn't really, it wasn't really about us. Right. They made up a, a, a grotesque monster that didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. And, but these, these were all parts of them.
1: Yeah.
0: And mm. it, it sort of reminds me of the fact that a lot of the time, the, the worst paroxysms of the white rage is when we approximate whiteness. So when, we get closer, mm-hmm. when we get closer to them. Right. If we're just existing in our little corner, they tend to leave us alone. Like they don't <laughs> want us to be, but like they need us. So mm. they tend to leave us alone if we stay in our place.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um I'm not saying nothing happens when we're in our place, but you know what I mean? Just broadly speaking. And then mm. I talked about how, you know, just an example, even within the minstrel world there were, you know, a handful of like black actors who were like, fine, I'm gonna use this then.
1: Mm.
0: And you know, I think that in some ways the joke was kind of on the white audience; and they didn't realize it. <laughs>
1: um,
0: and then I somehow tie that all the way to the way that superficial versions of blackness have been filtered all the way through pop culture and then present day. And then I talk about some story from my life and career. but it, it, you know, <laughs> it makes sense if you read it. But yeah, it, yeah. Um, but yeah, so like finding joy in. What they've handed us, I think is, is really important. Um, and it's also sort of reminds me of the whole like obsession with like work requirements and all these means testing things. And you know, mm-hmm. why do these people have phones? And it's just like, cause <laughs> you know, they, they, they're allowed to live too, right?
1: Humans. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you
0: know, it's just like, no, if you're, if you are poor, you must be miserable on top of being poor. Mm. Um and because in their idea that you know things just get better the higher you get on the pyramid.
1: Yeah.
0: But I read this book last year called Jackpot. Um, and it was about the ultra wealthy and the just the mi- minutia of their lives. Like everyone knows certain things about the ultra wealthy, right? Like you know the, the, the schools like they go nice schools are, but, but like we kind of know like those schools are not hidden. We know, we know, we know where Oxford and Princeton. And I say that I went to Princeton. Um, We know where they are, right? Mm. They're not, they're not secrets. Um, But like the just day to day stuff, right? And this guy, the ultra rich wouldn't talk to him because they like to be private about stuff. Not the, not the celebrities, but like the hundreds of millionaires. And they spend so much of their time just protecting their own money and being stressed about it. <laughs> like, clearly, their lives are easier in the sense that they can get health care and anything with a snap of their fingers, right? Obviously. But... It doesn't actually sound fun
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> It just it just seems so stressed all the time because yeah. like I don't know, I mean, like obviously there's exceptions to this, and I'm not saying everybody with and I'm not saying it's not better to have more money, obviously certain things, but there's a reason that those studies say that there's a limit to which how much money then happiness correlates, you know what I'm saying, yeah, um, so they put this image out there they're like. You need to keep rising and rising and rising. And it's like, but to what end?
1: Hmm. Literally,
0: to what end?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I feel, which mm-hmm. I'm saying,
0: I feel the same way about whiteness. and So forth. it's not just money, but it's like trying to get high. It's the same with people trying to get into whiteness. or It's probably mm-hmm. a little bit harder now because of the globalization of things. But like, you know, in mm-hmm. the early 20th century, various groups joining whiteness, like right. it was to get to the top. But to what end?
1: Right, right. And yeah, I mean, that, that just makes me think about in social psychology, there's more and more research on what's called identity threat, which I have problems with that label. I think it kind of gives credence to the notion that white identity is something that should be protected, but that's sort of a different discussion. Um, but, but yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels there about like the, the anxiety that a lot of white people feel, you know, even just being told for instance that you know, the US is soon to be a so-called majority minority country, like that alone creates identity threat in in some white people and you know, this notion of like change being something that that we should fear um but I think that it also really brings up these questions of like, yeah, what, what exactly is being protected and what is being feared? And how, like, how much do white people not know about the harm of protecting whiteness? I mean, that, that's such a huge and layered question, but a lot of this, the the social psych work that I'm talking about, it, zooms in so closely just on like the emotional you know responses without necessarily putting it into this bigger context and so I always am left with these kind of big questions of like okay but what does this what does this really mean on a societal level how can we unpack this and situate this you know putting the person in context instead of just thinking about like, okay, well, which situations can trigger identity threat so to say. Um, but yeah, also, also these big questions of like, what is being protected? Like, why, why is, I, yeah. I mean, to some degree, I know the answer of why, like you know, the hoarding of power and wealth, et cetera, but, but just on a day-to-day level, kind of as, as you're talking about it, just, uh, yeah.
0: I mean, it's, it's sort of a, it's like a negative pride.
1: Hmm.
0: It's, a, it's a, it's a pride in not being more than anything else. What it, do you mean? In the sense of like a pride in being white, which I'm not saying is the same as defending it, but you know, is, it's really not being not white. Hmm. You know, yeah. for, yeah. and, and because, like, what do people get? I mean, I don't just mean privilege and power and money and ease of life, but I mean in their heart. Heart is the wrong place, but you know what I mean. Um mm. Just, like, an emotional benefit. Like, if they actually feel that they get an emotional benefit from their white identity, and not like an ethnicity, but a white identity, mm. it, can it really be anything other than not being whatever version of not white is around you in whatever country right. you live in? yeah. It's not always not black. It could be not Asian. It could You know, depends on where they are, right? But yeah. like you know, it uh it's it, you know I, I I bring this up a lot in my writing and I bring it up a lot in the show where I think about like one of the hardest things for me to unpack about my own identity was my adherence to a pretty traditional understanding of intelligence. Hmm. And because one of the weird things in my whole youth and early adulthood is that it turns out that I had a disability,
1: Hmm.
0: but I may have ADHD, but it is a disability, right? And, Hmm. but it caused a lot of issues. I didn't realize it because I was quote unquote smart Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because I could do well on tests. Right. I knew kids had ADHD, but ADHD for me, it was the kid bouncing in his seat or it was the kid who needed extra time on the test. Yeah. I, I do things really fast. So I don't need extra time for anything. <laughs> like, that's that's not my problem. Um, yeah. It manifests differently to people. But the point is, I, I was like, I'm not like that. But then when I struggled, what I was told is, why can't you do this? You're smart.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, it, it took me until I really sort of looked at the literature and, you know, there are sessions and stuff. And it's not that I'm not. I'm just like dismissing the whole concept as being useful because as Leonardo and Broderick were talking about in their smartness as property article, like what are smart people, if not people without the people who are less smart?
1: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're getting at there is also just the, the problem inherent in any kind of comparison, whether we're talking about in daily life or especially in research which, you know, comparative research is the the bread and butter of psychology, including between racial groups. Um, And that's, you know, there's an ongoing discussion in the field of like, what does that mean? How can we how can we get away from that? Do we want to get away from that? What does that look like? But, yeah, I think exactly exactly as you're saying, like whenever you do a comparison, you're always necessarily creating a better and lesser category, a norm and a deficit, even if those aren't the words you're using. Um, and that's that's something we definitely need to be critically reflective of. Um, but something else I was thinking about when you were talking before, specifically about whiteness, is is something that I am thinking about, including in my research going forward, or or I want to look at more. It's just the way that white privilege is often framed. Um, and in some of my interviews, and I've gathered written narratives among college students that I'm working with right now, and it's something that I saw come up again and again, basically this framing of white privilege in sort of what I have started calling a hashtag blessed sort of way, where it's like, Oh, I'm so thankful for all that I have. I'm so thankful for, you know, the life I have, et cetera. And basically it's this kind of socially acceptable way to say I'm thankful for whiteness and being white. But I think folks would never say those things, but it's kind of this backwards way of saying like, yeah, I have so much privilege and I'm grateful for it. I'm thankful for it instead of saying, I recognize that I have privilege because of the unjust society we live in, and therefore we need to dismantle those structures and systems. Um, And it's it's fascinating to me, again, kind of going back to the beginning of this conversation, what you were saying, like the way that things can get flattened and taken up in a really problematic way, um, you know, recognizing white privilege, the way that I see a lot of white young people doing it is in this thankfulness, gratefulness, hashtag blessed kind of way instead of as a critique of whiteness. Um, so that's, again, something like I haven't systematically researched, but but something that I've been thinking about.
0: I, I, I think part of what I, what's hard about challenging these things is I think it's easy to show people how to, like, stand up for other groups. I'm not saying it's easy to do, but, like, it's really easy to come up with examples of how you might do that if it happens. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. you shouldn't do that. Like, there's ways to, for that to be, like, being a bias, and, Like, that can be useful, you know? But to me, there's so many stories wrapped up in whiteness. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean, like, history, but I mean, like, what you're supposed to do with your life.
1: Yeah, like intelligence, like you were just saying. Yeah, yeah. Like,
0: like, I think about... You can't, and I don't just mean you can't do it at work, not just work and at home, but like, you know, are you, you know, one of the things I do when I teach my whiteness class is I ask people between weeks one and two is like, just go home. and Well, they're all at home, but just go and think about like how you came to understand your whiteness in the first place.
1: Hmm.
0: And most of them they didn't really think about so they were adults. And these are not like. Bad people or anything like that, you know. They just never had to, or, or they knew they were white, obviously, but like they didn't think about what it meant. Yeah. Um. They knew that they were bad white people, and they weren't one of those. Yeah. Uh. But yeah. So when I like, for example, like how many people, especially since the pandemic, um, people we had a baby right beforehand and you know, it just started getting implied to us, like, well, you know, when you're going to move to the suburbs, hmm. and we thought about it, but then, like, every time we thought about it, we we just, we didn't want to, <laughs> <laughs> because, like, we, we were just, like, sat down, and we were just, like, wait a second, wait a second, we we're still working in the city, and obviously working at home and all that, but, like, we still have to go to the city, hmm. um, So we have to take the commuter train and that's going to be an extra cost on top of the subway. And then we have to drive everywhere else. And then we have to find him a place to do X, Y, and Z. And there's not a lot of parks here. And so so, and we just realized like, unless you can self-contain your life in that suburb, which some people can, and I guess some people who've been working fully from home could probably just do that. But like, Unless you can save contain your life in that suburb, if you still have to be attached to a city to do most of what you're doing, you're making your life worse. <laughs>
1: terrible. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like, I mean, it
1: yeah. seems terrible. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But like, it's just like you're going to be commuting forever. And then once you do that, you have to buy into certain narratives to be happy.
1: Yeah. Because once yeah. you do
0: that, you, you don't want to believe you made the wrong decision. Right. And then you, if you buy a house out there, what now you have to care about property value. As soon as you start caring about property, as soon as you start caring about property value, you start doing weird racist shit. So, (laughs) you know, like as as soon as property value becomes a major concern to you, like you you buy a house, like well, I'm buying this house, and then later I'm going to buy this other house, and like as a as a as a project is once you start with that. I'm not saying no one can ever buy several houses, but I mean, like, as a, a mindset, you know. Once you start with that, you have to really care about all of the things that exclude people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely.
0: With quote unquote good schools and all that, right? Oh, we move for oh, the school, yeah. We move for the schools. And I'm just like, right. you, because you know what you mean is you move for the other students because that's mm-hmm. what makes the school good.
1: You move for the whiteness, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's yeah that's um, that in particular is part of the the next project I have planned interviewing white parents um, and their white children in late elementary school about a lot of things related to whiteness and racial identity um, but also specifically about school choice and kind of looking at the the rationale both from the parents and then also from from their kids. And I want to, hopefully it's going to be a longitudinal project looking at how that changes reciprocally over time as kids get older too and go through middle school and into high school. Um, because I think, you know, there's not that much literature on, on how kids make sense of schools as white spaces, you know, racially segregated schools in particular, um, and how that relates to, to racial identity among white kids. I mean, I'm not familiar with anything in that realm. But thinking about, you know, kids being socialized by their teachers and their parents and then becoming adults, it's important to understand these processes from childhood onwards.
0: Oh, well, the final thing I'll say with all this, so now you have to go, is as far as research on adolescents and younger. They love to do research on racialized kids, mostly to pathologize them. And true. They, they love to do research on white kids and not mention the fact that they're
1: white. <laughs> very, very true. Yes. And they're,
0: they're just kids. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I feel like there's a lot of research on white kids. It's just like if they don't mention that they're white, they don't mention any race, then they're white.
1: <laughs> oh, that is that is very true. I should have been, yeah, more clear, I, I specifically mean research with white kids intentionally interrogating whiteness. Um, I mean, that work is very limited. But, yeah, you're totally right that the majority of, of developmental psych work is on white kids with no mention of race or whiteness.
0: Which is how I ended up getting diagnosed at 35. So, there you go. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. but, I thank you for joining me. This evening, I, I always say evening and then the show comes out in the morning, but that's okay. Um, thank you so much for having me. I, 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 was glad to have a chance to talk to you about this. I think it was one of my, I like the conversations that are just sort of freewheeling talking about things because, you know, I think a more formal show, I'd be like, you know, let's go through the research questions in your article. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know what show that is, but uh, I'm not <laughs> listening to it. So, um, but anyway, thanks for joining. If you have any final thoughts before we shove off here.
1: Oh, um, well, I mean, one thing that I was thinking about because I just submitted another article, um, with the college student narrative data, um, and one of our key findings was that, among the college students of color, we, we were interviewing them around the 2020 election and 2021 inauguration, so a lot was happening, um, and all of these students, you know, regardless of their race, a lot of them were talking about the election, about the you know, storming of the Capitol, about police brutality. But what we found was among a lot of the, the kids of color, the college students of color, they were making kind of easy, natural links between these societal events and their own experiences and their racial identities and just kind of daily life. And the white kids, I should stop saying kids, white students were not doing that. And so even if they are naming and critiquing societal inequity, as we talked about, they were not then reflecting on their own whiteness and what it means, you know, their role in these systems. And so that both seems really obvious that, like, yeah, white people don't do that, but it also... Felt like a pretty important finding for us thinking about like we want people, everybody to be, you know, critically conscious, to be resisting and critiquing. But if white people are not also and simultaneously and first interrogating their own racialized identities and roles in these systems, how meaningful is that critique actually going to be? Probably not that meaningful. It's probably going to end, you know, by the time they're adults, by the time they're having babies and choosing schools and buying houses, all the things you were just mentioning that kind of funnel you back into this system of whiteness. Um, so that is all to say racial identity, interrogation, development, formation is a necessary part of of societal critique as well especially if we're talking about white folks.